oh yes, God of the demand to enjoy, sorry, I'm recording now, um, is that I've, I've had the question asked, like, like yeah, why, why this religious interest? What's going on there? And one way of describing it is to say, well, um, there is a type of um, religious uh, demand, uh, the, the, a demand, uh, the, like religion uh, arises in lots of different ways. Uh, you can talk about nationalism being a type of religion. You can talk about, so religion can be described quite widely. And you can say this demand to enjoy is like the, the God that we are experienced today in the contemporary world, um, which is different from previous epochs. Uh, but now you really do get a sense of like, uh, especially in the West, this notion of, of trying to be fulfilled, optimized, um, and having everything that you could possibly want and et cetera, et cetera. And then there's lots of problems that arise from that. So I touched on some of those last week. I'm going to do a, a talk on it next month. Um, but I'll, I'll, in terms of the concept, I'll do this superego, right? So with the connection with the God of the demand to enjoy the God of prohibition. Um, if, you were, if you weren't there last two weeks ago, the basic idea is the God of prohibition is this idea that we are all divided. We're all what's called castrated, which means all of us have had to give something up to be alive. We've, when we come into the world, um, we give up this, this feeling of oneness with our mother. We give up this sense of uh, uh, being in the, the womb-like oceanic oneness of whatever. And we enter into this thing where we can't really get full enjoyment. We have to get substitute enjoyment. I think I talked about how we do that in many ways. Like it's not just kind of enjoying a beach. Uh, it's also taking a picture of us being on the beach and enjoying the enjoyment of people seeing that we're on the beach, you know, or the enjoyment of sharing life, you know, like that's the interesting thing about us as human beings is private enjoyment isn't really very enjoyable. Um, you know, that there's that story of the, the uh, pastor who lies every week to his congregation that he's, that he's helping the homeless, but he's really playing golf. I'm sure most of you know this story, but basically every week he lies to the congregation, says, I'm, I'm feeding the homeless, you know, I'm doing my work on a Sunday, what are you doing? But the truth is, yeah, he's just going to the golf club, playing 18 holes, and God finds out, and God decides to play a trick. So one week he goes down to the golf course, and the, the pastor takes a swipe at the ball, hits it, and first one goes into the hole in one, right? First, first uh, whatever you call it, <laughs> uh, hits a hole in one. Then he goes to the second, gets another hole in one, and he gets a hole in one right through to the 18th um, because God is helping. And then God withdraws, and the angels say to God, like, what were you doing? Like, we thought you were going to punish this guy, but you gave him the perfect round of golf. And God says, ah, but who's he going to tell? Who's he going to tell? Right. So the idea is he's been lying to everybody. So he can't tell anybody he had this perfect round of golf because then everyone would know he wasn't helping the poor. So actually, the perfect round of golf isn't something wonderful. It's deeply painful because you can't share it. Right. That is a psychoanalytic insight that we don't have private in, in, enjoyment. Right. Um, it, we, we, we can have a certain amount of private enjoyment, but it's always infused with another with doing something in front of another. You obviously see kids who are always going up to their mom and dad. So look at me, look at me, you know, they want, want you to look. And so um, 
the God of prohibition is the idea that we've given up something to enter the world. We are all now in relationship, getting substitute enjoyments. So now I'm connected to you. The, the, the baby doesn't have public enjoyment. The baby is at the mother's breast and then falls asleep, right? That's kind of private enjoyment. After the incest taboo, after you basically have to separate from the primary caregiver, now you're in the public world and now you're kind of can never go back to fully private enjoyment. Um, uh, even if you are privately enjoying, you might be fantasizing about people knowing that you got a high score on the computer or whatever it is. So we're now in the public world, we're interconnected and we all had to give something up. Uh, but we fantasize one exception and this is God. You know, God is the one exception. Um, or it could be somebody else, our father or mother or <clears throat> person, some exception, but we're all, we're, we're all castrated uh, except for one. <laughs> That's the God of the um, of prohibition. Um, the God of the demand to enjoy is this notion that, that um, we can be whole and complete just like God. We can kind of like, the, none of us need to be divided. None of us need to be in antagonism with ourselves and each other. And there's a way to overcome that through enough money, fame, drugs, sex, whatever it is. That's the God of the demand to enjoy. And so those were the two things that I was talking about two weeks ago. Um, and then I talked about in terms of radical theology, and this is where theology comes in, that there is the God who is also divided, right? So there's the God who is not divided, but everybody else is. There's the God where God's not divided and neither are we. Hypothetically, we can all have wholeness and completeness. And then there is, there is the God who is also divided, just like us. And um, the name of that God, I would say, is crucified Christ, right? The, 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 the God who experiences death, a kind of a certain kind of like death within itself. Um, there's a really powerful message to that. And the, um, I'm not going to get into what that is necessarily right now, but it is basically the core of everything we do in power theology. So obviously it's the kind of thing that, that wholeness and completeness isn't even something that, oh, it would be great if we could have it, but we can't. I was talking to somebody yesterday and they said it like that. They said, well, uh, you know, some of your work, Pete, is like, um, it's like, well, we can't, we can't have that completeness that we would like. Uh, but I was like, well, it's not quite that. It's not like, oh, we can't have it, so we have to live without it. It's like, no, it would be horrific if we could have it. That's, that's the, the radical insight. Not, there is no radical insight to say that we're all struggle and have to face death and difficulties. No, there's no radicality to that. The radicality is if somehow you got rid of sacrifice, if somehow you got rid of struggle, you would simultaneously get rid of the utopia that you're imagining lies on the other side of it, right? The, the utopia is, is a fantasy generated by, by the struggle. And um, there's something radical about saying that there is a healthy, there's an unhealthy, but there's a healthy form of sacrifice. Um, there's a he healthy form of struggle um, that is actually part of reality itself, part of everything. And somehow we need to be able to live into that. And that will be helpful on a personal and a political level. Um, okay, so that was, that's a summary of what I was talking about. Um, and then I'll say one thing about the superego then, is superego is a little bit different from conscious, the, from uh, conscience. 
conscience is connected to the God of, of prohibition. So conscience is kind of like um, that feeling that you should maybe be nice to somebody, you should be kind, and maybe you you didn't, maybe you chose to do something selfish instead of being being uh, kind to your neighbor, right? And you've got conscience, which kind of like uh, makes you feel a bit bad, makes you reflect on that. Um, the superego is a little bit different. The superego is connected to um, your enjoyment. So the superego is the thing that actually beats you up for not having enough enjoyment for not doing enough fun things, for not um, being social enough, not having enough friends, not going out enough. So if you, I could say it like this, like conscience is a type of, uh, it's, con it's connected with you basically give, give, giving up what you should do ethically for your pleasure, right? conscience giving up what you should do ethically for the sake of your pleasure the superego is connected with giving up your pleasure um, uh, and making your pleasure your duty so whenever a psychoanalyst like like Shizak says the superego a conjunction to enjoy what they're saying is today we don't really live in the world of conscience as much obviously we have conscience but we more live in the era of superego that when you're looking on Instagram and you're seeing all these people having fun and you feel really bad, like you're missing out, that's the superego. The superego is, is connected with this um, beating you up for not having enough pleasure, for kind of sadistically telling you off for being boring, for not, for um, what, what FOMO, fear of missing out, that's the superego, right? It's kind of beating you up <laughs> with FOMO. Um, whereas conscience uh, is, is something a little bit different. Okay, so there's just, there's something, because I promise I'd, I'd give you some content, but um, you can open it up and anybody want to ask anything about that or take us in a completely different direction. All is welcome. William, jump in. The way you've presented these things, and forgive me, this is a better of a meta-analysis, is very much in terms of transactional language. We have this to get that. We don't have this, we want that. And I was just reflecting on that, on that language and, um, and wondering, <clears throat> is that an accidental or a deliberate thing on your part to present these ideas in transactional form? Or is it, is it just what we do as part of our culture? I th you know, I, I think the classic example in Christian theology is penal substitution, you know, that Jesus did this so we can get that, so we don't have to do this and we can do that, and we are substituted. And when, when you look at those kind of theologies and the ideas you're presenting in a transactional form, maybe we miss something a bit deeper. And I don't want to get too much into it, but that, that's, you know, is transactional language deliberate from your perspective and, and what you're presenting here? Okay, so I need to think about it exactly in, in um, what I was just saying there, but I will say yeah. is like, you're absolutely right. Like one, one of the issues for me with um, uh, <clears throat> this desire to get rid of sacrifice mm. is that's, that's a desire to get rid of something non-transactional. So mm. sacrifice and gift are two non-transactional modes of being. So a gift is obviously non-transactional because you don't get something in return. The, the perfect gift is you give without return. And then sacrifice is also a giving 
I mean, it's a type of gift, right? Because to sacrifice something is to buy a pint when you're not going to get one in return or whatever. It's a, it's a, mm. it's a non-reciprocal, non-transactional, non-economic thing. So what you're saying is very, very key is that for me, um, but I, basically if you get rid of sacrifice, you get rid of what makes life meaningful and what makes life meaningful is precisely non-transactional ways of being in the world. And every society has them. Like even the most exchange oriented society has all these rituals of gift giving, like bringing a bottle of wine when you go to a party or baking mm. a cake for a birthday or presents. Like every society has to have, or buying a round of drinks like in Ireland or whatever it is, every society has to have certain forms of non-reciprocal activities because i would say is if you got rid of them you would get rid of meaning entirely so i don't know if that's connected exactly but what you're saying is very important because i would say theologically speaking um again this is one of the things is we're trying to we're trying to sensitize ourselves to non-transactional ways of being in the world oh. does that connect with what what you meant at all yeah, I, th I think it does. And, and I've, I've, I've been challenged in terms of thinking about the transactional language we do and we use in terms, it, in terms of my own thought patterns. Because I think, I think when we start talking about transactions, we, we actually sort of, we, we kind of poison ourselves and, and put a material value on everything. Mm. And, and I, 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 I'm, I'm trying to rewrite my brain, if you like, and, 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 and try and remove some of that, that, that thought pattern, that language, because yeah. I think it's actually helpful in terms of relating to one another. So it, it, it mirrors what you were saying, I think, yes. Oh, thing, Courtney. And then um, so you say you get rid of sacrifice, you get rid of meaning. Why is that? Like, what is it about us humans that makes sacrifice so absolutely vital? Yeah, I mean, I think like uh, when you think about it is like there's that we kind of people say like you sacrifice for what you love. And that's very true. We sacrifice for the people we love and for what we love. But there's also another side of it where you can turn it on its head and say you love because you sacrifice. Like, I, I mean, on a very superficial level, I don't know if this holds or not, but one time we were talking about this and I thought, well, having a kid is an interesting example because there's so much sacrifice even before the kid arrives. I mean, the amount of, you know, physical, bodily difficulty to you know to to bring a kid into the world and the savings that you have to do and all of this sacrifice that has to happen um is it's almost like it's not that's why you love the kid at all but you know it's almost like the amount of sacrifice is when the child comes into the world um there's this deep deep love like they're connected that's what i'm saying they're dialectically connected the suffering the sacrifice and the love so Maybe why why is it? It's like it's funny you're asking that because kind of like um, it's so infused. I mean, desire itself is about lack. You desire what you do not have, and whenever you get something, you know your desire for it can can diminish. You know that's why in love again. You, there's a certain sense which you don't have the person that you're with. There's a certain amount of unknowing and adventure and. So the desire is maintained precisely by not having. So these are just giving examples, but it's almost like um, 
that with, without lack, there's no space to breathe. With, with, if, if you get all the money you want, if you get all of, the, all of the whatever you want and there's no gap, there's, no, there's nothing in it except for full presence, it's suffocating, it's destructive, it destroys. So I don't know, does, that, does anybody else have a better way of describing it? But I'm kind of describing how like the very, the very earliest point of the infant is whenever desire erupts for Lacan, the moment that the child is separated from the mother. <clears throat> so there's no desire before separation, like they're one. And it's, it's kind of, there's something going on there, but it's once the separation happens, the child can desire the mother. Um, and also, but if the mother is too over proximity, if there's too much over proximity, if the mother is <clears throat> everything to the child and the child is everything to the mother, then desire doesn't have a chance to, to kind of breathe and to move. So you, even I would say from when, you see it in children is their their desire to be around their parents but also it can be suffocating and their desire you know they're learning to desire other things so but i don't feel i've explained i think i've just given more examples do you want to come back on it and no i mean that that definitely gives me a lot of food for thought <laughs> yeah yeah um so we, so without lack there's no desire and desire is what drives us. Yeah. So basically, if we had no sacrifice, we'd be like the Eloy in the time machine. The the H.G. Wells novel. Oh, yeah. The, you know, they they had nothing. Everything was provided for them, but all they were was cattle being fattened for them for the uh feeding. Yes. So they had no sacrifice, they had no desire, so they, they had no humanity, basically. Exactly, absolutely, okay. absolutely. And, and psychoanalytically, you can call this, or sometimes it's a form of melancholy. And you can see this sometimes, whenever someone's completely successful, they achieve everything that they wanted to achieve. There's this melancholy that's connected with, um, kind of with getting everything, with having everything that's that's actually, you know, itself deeply, you can almost say depression is the sadness of not getting what you want and melancholy mm -hmm. is getting it. It's like they're, they're both have this weird kind of suffering. Now, by the way, if this is the case, then, then one politically can say the problem with contemporary society, one of the many problems, whatever, is um, to simplify is that well, there's loads of sacrifice goes on in society. Loads of people sacrifice, um, have shit jobs, don't get paid very well, et cetera, et cetera. They're sacrificing huge, <clears throat> um, but they don't benefit from the sacrifice. That's the problem. The problem isn't the sacrifice. The problem is it's not, it's not that we're all sacrificing and we're all benefiting from the sacrifices. We're, we're all sacrificing and a few people are benefiting from the sacrifice. <laughs> um, and that's not even good for them. But it's definitely doubly, triply not good for the people you're sacrificing. So in this model, it's like, instead of us dreaming about a society without sacrifice, it's more about dreaming of a society in which we all sacrifice mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and society benefits from that. Yeah. If I could just jump in here too, I, I think that there's also an element that we're sort of socialized in this way like in, in our society where we tend to think the bigger the sacrifice, the greater the value of the thing, right? So the more money I spend on something, you know, the more inherent value that I think it has, whether that 
matches reality or not. But I think, and it might be related to this super egoic thing as well, which is that we live in a society of, of abundance, you know? And so you see people do things to try to create more boundaries when there aren't any, like we, you know, we, we can get coffee from coffee pods now, right? Like you can get a Keurig and have a cup of coffee instantly. And now you see people going out buying French presses and fancy things that, you know, it takes 10 minutes to make a cup of coffee, you know? And I think that in a way that's sort of this urge where like, we find no joy in the K cup anymore. Yeah. So we have to go through these rituals of, of buying expensive things to create more, you know, making the more coffee difficult. And in the end, I mean, maybe it tastes a little bit better or whatever, but I think that's more psychic than yes. anything, you know? Um, and I mean, I could go on and on about that with, with all kinds of different things, but I just think that that's kind of an example. That's a brilliant example. I mean, that's the kind of, you know, the, the hipster thing, whenever hipster stuff happened, it, it was mostly, well, you know, culturally, it was the attempt to make things more difficult again to bring back enjoyment. So like everything, whether it was riding a bike and somebody would ride a petty farling or whatever, or making coffee in a very roundabout way or going back to vinyl and, listen, and buying records and doing all like, and so in one sense for me, hipsterism was partly an attempt to bring meaning back to a society and a culture that was lacking meaning and the way hipsters did it which is very ingenious you know it was a, in a sense to make things difficult again and by me either in terms of temporality so as you say it takes 20 minutes to make a cup of coffee or in terms of cost um, or in terms of building something like building your own bike or whatever it is so yeah i think it's a great example uh, Sawyer, were you going to jump in there? Yeah, sorry as well. yeah I, I, I actually wanted to. Um, I, I'm very interested in, in how this conversation relates to perhaps the ways in which um, the, if, if like the, the paramount value is um, enjoyment or, or happiness in our society, the ways that that's either intentionally or unintentionally weaponized by the workplace. Um, I think um, like a few examples that just have been coming to mind through this is um, like uh, at a conference I was working at a little while ago, there was a business guru there and they were talking about how um, don't give your employees bonuses anymore uh, because there's scientific proof that uh, bonuses don't make employees more happy. It actually makes them want more of a bonus uh, next year. Give them company swag. Um, which of course is really interesting because in the tech companies, I think company swag has become almost like the equivalent of uh, like wearing your shirt that says, I work at Facebook, or I work at, um, you know, Guild or, or, or whatever. Like, I'm just thinking about the companies around here in Denver um, where you're like, you get a, a satisfaction from, from participating in uh, the company's marketing campaign. <laughs> Which is very interesting because other people see that you work for this prestigious but of course you're kind of like locked in this in this thing where you you think you want to work for these companies uh and you put on their garb and their clothes that's been replaced um like that used to be your bonus and now it's your company swag so uh, it's just very interesting how these ideas kind of relate to the the tech industry and 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 other like philosophies around making the workplace more fun and more enjoyable, but it's actually a lot more exploitative in a way. Um, yeah. But we are even seeing sometimes higher salaries and things like that, but we're also seeing um, longer work days. And like, you know, my, my girlfriend, for example, 
she keeps having these meetings with her boss and, and she's like, we just want you to be more pas passionate and creative. Like, why can't you find, like, they're trying to, like, they want, like, like the workforce wants all of our, our, our sort of um, joy. <laughs> like they want us to find meaning and happiness, but of course it's, it's, it's being reintegrated for capital. And it, so it's like, they're taking some sort of uh, um, idea of meaning and, and, finding meaning in work and, and yeah. trying to like rope it in and, and they're roping it in in some ways through um, I think the 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 super egos thing that you're kind of talking about where you're you're wanting what other what you think other people want <laughs> yeah there's a my my um my favorite comedian or one of them is David Mitchell but he uh on his quiz show he was talking about in America how um shopkeepers and stuff are shop staff are always very friendly and very nice and and in Britain the UK they're not you go into a shop and like they'll just be ignored no and and David Mitchell said you know being like it's it's bad enough you have to work in a shop but like to be happy as well and i said and he says um it's a, it's the sign of a moron or a liar <laughs> if you're happy because he's like oh yeah like not only yeah of course i have to work in this shop yes i have to work and i have to feed my kids but i'm not going to be happy about it you know like but you want my happiness as well um it's a yeah. straight this is extra demand you know? yeah and i just think it makes me think about the ways in which of course like how we approach you know getting out of happiness as a paramount value is a, a total different question, but just like the idea of questioning, like if I feel happy about this position, that's not necessarily always a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. The idea. Yeah. So I, I wanted to jump in here again, because I'm so like, just really interested in what you were just talking about, because I think you're on to such a huge, huge thing, like with our society, because you know, again, it's like we're the sort of the injunction is that you're supposed to identify with your job, enjoy your job. It wasn't it used to be just kind of like the the understanding was you would go to work, you know, put in the sacrifice. It's a little bit of like, a, you know, a, a prohibition like you're supposed to damper your own desires, go to work, get a paycheck, come home. Now it's a whole different ballgame. And in a way, and I think Zizek talks about this, it's almost more totalitarian, right? It's almost like the, you know, and I believe, Pete, you've talked about this in the past. It's like parents with their kids, you know, the parent is like, who says, get in the car, we're going. That's mm -hmm. somehow less repressive than the, no, you should want to go. You have to, you know, want to go see your grandma or whatever, that that's actually a little bit more, you know, traumatic and, and you know, totalitarian in a way. And I just, I think that's such a huge part of what we're dealing with in society today. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. And that, that the uh, what Greg's referencing there, that's a Shizak example I've used, but he says, uh, by basically, if you've got a kid and you have to go to see grandma and the, the old school parents, the conservative parents say, you've got to see grandma and the kid says no. And they say, get your coat, get in the car, you're going to see grandma. But the progressive family, will you know sit little johnny down and go you have to see grandma and you know you really want to don't you you know you're a good boy and you want you know you'll make her happy and you'll make her smile uh, and she's like says you know this is doubly terrible because one it's a lie because if the child says no i just want to play the xbox they'll go back to get your coat get in the car you're going and then secondly not only do you have to go you have to enjoy it like the first kid 
can go, but can at least have a fantasy space where they go, when I'm old enough, I can do what I, whatever the hell I want. <laughs> but in the second example, there's no space for rebellion because the, the parent is trying to colonize the child's inner space with enjoyment. And that, I love that example because it's a beautiful, very kind of funny way of, of seeing the difference between the God of the demand to enjoy and the God of prohibition. And as Greg said, the God of prohibition in a job is like, no, you're not supposed to like your job. It's crap. But we all have to do, you know, we all have to do a bit of work and you go in, you do your thing to today. It's like, hey, 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 let's have the conference where we all got the swag. We're all wearing the Facebook logo. Hey, we're all happy here, aren't we? We love this. You go like, you, not only do you have to work for Facebook, you have to bloody like it. <laughs> You know, yeah, there's something even more oppressive about that. Um, yeah. Hey, Pete. Hey, hey, who's that? Oh, is that uh, Derek? This is, hey. this is Derek, yeah. Um, it just kind of reminds me of a saying that I heard a while back where, uh, again, the paradox is that com compliance is more dangerous than rebellion. Ah, yep. Compliance is more dangerous than rebellion, yes. Um, okay, there's a few ways I can interpret that. Do you want to say anything about that? And um, Well, there's, there's tons of different, you know, applications. You know, you could apply it to a child. You know, if you don't let the kid rebel, he never becomes an individual. You could, you know, you could also apply the concept to governments. You know, if, if we don't have rebellion, we don't have Bonhoeffer. You, you know, I mean, so we can and then we can go anywhere between a kid and like massive governments and still apply the concept, I think. Yes. I yes. mean, and I think that and then spiritually, too. I mean, if we if we just comply religiously, I think that's the most dangerous space to live in as a Christian. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, unless we can rebel against this God, we'll never know him. You, you know, it, it's that kind of thing. Yes, no, that's brilliant. And, you know, Israel means to rest with God. There's also, I'll give another reading of it, which is fun as well, um, is, uh, is this idea that, that um, radical compliance can really be disruptive as well. So in, sometimes in workplaces, when you're not able to uh, go on strike, what you can do is go by the letter of what you have to do exactly and do no more, right? And so you completely comply and uh, uh, so an example of the Shizek uses is when he was a student, they did this, there was, uh, and he's from Slovenia, and there was the communist government was in power. The communist government would w win every year, right, by like 90% or 80%, but everyone knew it was fixed, right? Everyone knew it was fixed, but no one, uh, no one questioned it. Everyone pretended it was free. So what Shizek and his friends did is, was very clever. They had this student magazine, and what they did is they did this big thing in the run-up to the elections, who's going to win, free elections, it's all to play for, like none of us can predict in advance what's going to happen, right? And then on the, the day of the elections, they came out with a special edition, Communist Party wins, who could have imagined, you know, da-da-da-da-da. They were brought in by the KGB, and the KGB sat them down and said, you've got to stop doing what you're doing. And they were like, doing what? And they were like, you know what you were doing? And they were like, well, it's a free election, wasn't it? Like, we didn't know he was going to win. And they're going, yes, it's a free election, but stop it, right? In other words, what they couldn't do is they couldn't say, it's not a free election. We all know it's, it's a piss take. And you guys, by 
by basically being overly sincere and, and kind of like being so sincerely believing that it's a free election made everybody laugh because everyone's laughing because everyone knows it's not a free election was even more subversive. <laughs> so there's this, uh, just dialectically, there's a really interesting thing where for sometimes complete compliance is, is a really, is a way to rebel. But anyway, that was, that was the second. Uh, no, that, that, that is, yeah, that's really awesome. I, I haven't hmm. heard many people talk about that. Uh, but it's a fascinating way of influence. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, and the way I like the metaphor I use when I teach people that concept, because it's a hard concept to teach, to be honest with you. Yes. Uh, but the, the metaphor I use is go ahead, give the dog the bone, but then shove it down his throat. Uh, like, yes. Oh, give him what good, he yeah. wants, you know, but make him choke on it. Yes. You, you know, That's and, it, it. It, and it can be used. Uh, and, and I like to suggest that, you know, it can be used for malicious. I mean, you can use that kind of thing, it, you know, but if your motive is, you know, it all comes down to, is it manipulation or is it influence? It, it, you know, it, it all depends on the motivation. You know, yes. if, if the motivation is good, you know, uh, you know, trying to murder somebody's not good unless you were, you know, again, unless you were Bart and Bonhoeffer, <laughs> yeah. right? <laughs> And, and then all of a sudden now murdering someone might, might've been the best thing ever. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, that's the, and one quick funny story about that uh, horrible thing to, to tell on myself about, but I remember when I was much younger, my, my wife desperately wanted me to play games with the kids. And I, and I, I just, this is not me. I just couldn't stand the whole idea of it. And finally I just complied. I'm like, every night I'm going to come home and I'm just going to play games with my little kids, you know, and certainly there's nothing wrong with playing. It's just not who I was. You know, I much rather have help them with a math problem or something. And so I came home and did it, did it, did it, did it, did it. Finally, my wife was like, okay, please stop. Yeah. <laughs> you know, enough's enough. Yeah. You, you know, th this isn't, this isn't really compliance doesn't really work here. Yes. So yes. anyways, it's that, that doesn't say a lot about me, but it, it is an example of kind of <laughs> the situation. No, absolutely. And there's a few more examples. It's very funny because this is a very, like, like Derek said, like it's a very, um, it's actually a very rich vein to understand is most societies, all societies basically have implicit transgressions. So for example, if you're at Eton public school in the UK, uh, which, you know, trains up, uh, royalty and politicians. Um, it's all about respect, equality, being sober, being, uh, you know, non-pathological in terms of like, not, not about your enjoyment, but learning how to govern. But then you will have like these places where you get drunk and are terribly awful and little secret societies, which are all the opposite, right? And it's not that these are opposed. It's actually this secret a transgressive space is precisely what enables this to keep to keep going. Um, and if you take away the transgressive little, like, so it's even like going to work. You go to work at the uh, all week and you act very professionally and then at the weekend go out and get drunk or whatever. And you've got this transgressive bit is actually what enables the other thing to work. Um, or a society that says we're all equal, but the implicit grammar is that some people are treated worse than others, whoever that is. Um, and actually affirming what is said, but not affirming the transgressive underbelly, the transgressive grammar, is actually what can destabilize that system 
more quickly and more easily. So anyway, there's lots of ways you can apply this stuff, but it is interesting that basically there is always acceptable and unacceptable transgressions. That's basically what it is. We're all allowed to go over the speed limit. There's acceptable transgressions and then there's unacceptable transgressions. And any system, um, any system will, will have its acceptable, unacceptable behavior, right? Every, and so maybe the office party or whatever it is, there's, there's the acceptable, unacceptable behavior, and then there's unacceptable behavior. And um, we often, the problem is, for example, if we're fighting a system, they will, they, they will have a allowed form of transgression. And if we do the allowed form of transgression, it's not transgressive at all. Anyway, but these are just ways you can start to apply these ideas. Yeah, I want to I want to jump off that because I think it, it ties into some of like and just to go back because I'm I'm just on this like you know uh, tech company kick right now but like the office party is a great example uh, kombucha and beer on tap that's free in your office like you used to go to the bar and like um, talk shit about your boss well now it's like no drink in front of drink in front of, with your boss in and do it for free and it's like they're trying like bringing that bringing the idea of um, what what the space of like venting is like as a space into um you know one of the floors of a, of a corporate building um there is still the the secret like unmentioned transgression though which is now you can't talk about how much you hate the boss that you're supposed to love that gives you free beer and will drink with you like it's <laughs> like there but there's still something there it's just hidden Yes, oh. it's just hidden. Yeah. Oh, yeah. An example of that. I mean, you say you're in the tech industry, like in tech industry, from what I can tell, and this is bigger and bigger everywhere. Is like you don't talk about your boss probably as your boss. You maybe use their first name. Like they dress like you. You kind of so. In other words, on the surface, you're all equal. Oh, don't call me, you know, Doctor Rollins. Call me Pete, right? You know, and we're all equal. And da, da, da. so that's on the surface. But the underlying grammar is, I'm the boss, and I can fire you if I want, right? Now, if you actually don't, so what you do in that work, of course, to survive is you pretend that we're all equal while you understand that you're not equal at, a, at the grammar. What's more radical is pure compliance where you treat your boss completely as an equal. <laughs> now, you'll get fired really quick, but it would be like, um, you know, walking into his office anytime, sitting down, putting your feet up, going, I always go like, I'm, I don't think I'm going to come into work tomorrow, mate, you know, because, uh, you know, I'm going to go and see, have a few beers with my, with my friends. You know, hey, we're, we're, we're all, you know, it's all fine. You can do that whenever you want as well. You're going to get fired very quick. So it's a good example of how all these corporate structures have, um, you know, they're kind of acceptable transgressions and unacceptable transgressions. <laughs> yeah, and just quickly, that, that almost seems like a really good, more actualized example of, some, of like symbolic order versus super ego like mm. something where there's the external and then now it's like it's it's still there but it's it's self-governed uh prohibition or something but yeah yeah because there's almost something like i mean we're all just riffing here but it's really fun <laughs> um but like the old school where you called your boss the boss and you know they were dressed differently and like there's something more oppressive of that but you can but you can have an internal space of, again, kind of like of resistance that can maybe create something that would go somewhere. But in this new thing, you know, where you treat your boss as an equal and you call them by their first name and stuff like that, there's less inner space for, um, for the resistance, 
But this is why Shizek loves the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Because he reads it, and I think there's some Jewish people who read this very literally, which is God saying, yeah, you can do it privately behind my back. Just don't do it publicly. You'll have no other gods in front of me. But yeah, of course. So it's like your parents saying, don't get drunk in front of me. But they're going like, yeah, of course you're going to get pissed with your mates. That's fine. We'd be disappointed if you didn't. But hey, you know, like in front of us, in terms of what you do, like you're, you're going to, you know, you're not going to get drunk. Um, and so the idea is that, that within Judaism, there is a space for an internal resistance that can then be used against God. But whenever in Christianity, confessional Christianity, God becomes so internalized, there's no space of rebellion. <laughs> so yeah, there's, I think there's really interesting uh, uh, secular forms of that. Here, by the way, Chris, you did put up your hand a while back. I don't know if we've moved on from the conversation, but... Well, it, this does take it back a bit, but uh, you were talking about fear of missing out. Oh yeah, and I was I was thinking that to my mind that is largely based on mimetic desire, which considering that we're ta also talking Lacan and Lacan talks of the mirror stage and that is mimetic. Can you weave mimesis back into what you've been saying? Yes, yes. I, okay, I can, and to see how technical this gets. Um, if it gets too technical, you know, whatever, this is why you're here <laughs> um, and that you asked the question. So, um, it, it, well, what I think Lacan says is right, very, he, there's, um, he makes a distinction between what he calls the ego ideal and the ideal ego. So when the infant is looking in the mirror, this is the ego ideal, their ego, they look into the mirror and maybe it's the mirror of their brother or their sister, but they kind of see mimetically someone else and they, um, see that as an ideal, they bring that ideal into themselves. Um, an ideal ego, it's really annoying, the terms are so, so similar. Um, I always worry that I'm getting them the wrong way around. The ideal ego is whenever, it's not that I'm looking at the ideal, but that I feel myself being looked at by the ideal and being judged by it. Now, the reason why I'm making those, that distinction is because my understanding of Lacan is that, is that the God of the demand to enjoy is the ego ideal. That's the imaginary. That's you're looking at some other that's like yourself who you admire or you're jealous of or you're in conflict with in some way. Um, God as the ideal ego is an external force that is judging you and questioning you and looking at you. Both are about mimetics, but they have slightly different ones, imaginary, one symbolic. I think I can basically what Lacan is saying is conscience is at the level of the symbolic and superego is at the level of the imaginary, but they're both mimetic, um, but, 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 in, but in these two different levels. So if I put that in a nutshell, it's like the, there is a, the God of the symbolic God is this external authority in which we're all castrated, the boss who says, right, you have to do your work. You don't have to be happy about it, right? We're all castrated. Um, the imaginary God, the ego ideal God is the God who is like, yeah, it's called me by my first name. We're all in this together. We're all having a great time working for Facebook and whatever. Um, and yes, and that's the difference between conscience and superego. The conscience is connected with the symbolic God. Superego is connected with the imaginary God. There you go. Does that 
but it's all mimetic. It's all mimetic, like Chris was saying. So mimetics are, is just the idea that I learn what to desire through looking at what you desire. Um, I, there's a thing called joint attention. I think it's the point when a child can start to see what you're looking at. There's a point where basically the child can begin to see your desire alighting on something by the way you look at something else. And so the child starts to see, name the things that you're looking at through where your eyes are going. <laughs> And, um, and then, and that's kind of mimetic desire is the child starts to desire what you desire because they desire your desire. All of that's connected I, to all of this. Uh, yeah, so it's very important. So is that, oh, go for it, just, real, just real quick about the, the mimetic and desire. I learned what to desire by looking at what you desire. Is that, is that what we do with the last guru, if we can find one? Yes, yes, exactly. Kind of, yes. So the last guru, which I really am glad you brought that up. That's kind of, I really enjoyed exploring those ideas. Um, is that, well, or do you mean that like, basically, you know, you people, somebody comes to a guru, for example, because um, they think that person has the answer. They have a yes. certain desire. Um, and then the last guru is the one who disinvests them of that of that notion. Yes. yes. So do you want to do you want to expand on that at all, or is that because I think they are connected? Well, I'm just thinking that if if I come to someone that I that I am I'm approaching that person as my guru, my mentor, my I think they've got they've got it all together. They know what they know the answer, <laughs> yes. whatever the question is. They've got the answer. And, uh, and I, I start to in, invest in that person. I'm, I'm trying to, I don't, I don't always have the words for this stuff. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, I'm trying to, to figure out what it is they want. And then that way I can mimic that and that'll fix my life. Um, and then the last guru would be the person who, who finally helps me to see that I don't actually need a guru um, because there is no one who has the answer. You know, there is nothing that's going to fill the gap, satisfy the desire. Um, so the, the mimetic part comes in with, with me trying to imitate what the guru does or imitate how the guru thinks um, in order to uh, fix my life. And then at some point I have to grapple with the fact that um, this, uh, the, the noun form, the mimes mimesis that I'm engaging in is not going to fix things. Yes, I mean, that's beautifully said. I mean, and the, the basic thing is once, once you're engaged in transference with, the, with, the, with this religious leader, with this guru, um, the last guru is the one who shows that their desire is divided as well. Because what you mm -hmm. do is you go and we all go almost thinking that the other person has a substantive desire. They have something, they have the answer, it's substantive. And so the last insight is when you realize that, oh, they are divided as well. So they're, they're desirous. In other words, the mm -hmm. guru is, is also divided, is yeah. also non-substantive. And the trick is it, that doesn't get rid of obviously mimesis. So that's a basic structure that just kind of, of how we desire. Mm -hmm. But what, what hopefully happens is we, we almost, we start to desire desire itself, right? Instead of desiring mm -hmm. 
the mm -hmm. end of desire through some completion we mm -hmm. somehow become more comfortable with the fact that we're all desiring creatures um but there's no substantive end point to that um and so yeah the last guru is for me the the, the one who enables that that existential insight i love that thank you thank you um was somebody else going to pop in there yeah i was, was going to Chandler, I was going to, I was going to ask a question. Um, one thing I've been thinking about a lot lately and it kind of came up in this conversation as well is how you talked about, you know, the, there is, it's, there's no, there's no like private enjoyment. Um, but it seems like so much of like modern capitalist society, like really plays into that fantasy. It seems like so many things are like seeking for the private enjoyment, like even, I have like a five-year-old and a two-year-old and even like, you know, where we live, you know, there's, there were, there used to be a lot of like public parks and now there's a lot of like, you know, more like rich houses. And so there's less public parks and there's all these private parts, parks that are, you know, behind people's fences. And um, that there seems to be like this movement towards that kind of fantasy of, oh, I can have a private enjoyment. Um, and it, it really seems to be rampant. And I, and so I, my question is like, how do you, how do you shift the access back to the public is, and is public, is that the right term? Do we want a public enjoyment or is there something else? Is there a different way that the public is maybe enjoyment the wrong term or is it the right term but how do we how do we shift that access yeah no that's that's very good i mean because that that is there's a real i mean and to be honest the basis of liberalism as a philosophy is 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 basically atomism is that the idea that we are individuals first who enter into community and so there is at the very basis of liberal philosophy this notion that say we are individuals who then are part of community whereas I think it's the exact opposite is an infant is is as part of a community before they have any sense of selfhood <clears throat> it's not like we're at the side of the pool and we jump into the pool of community you know as you know it's like no we're already in the pool um and uh, and we become a self very gradually out of this 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 kind of um the other out of the other so we're connected with the other inherently but you're exactly right and one of the issues one of the reasons why i think the fantasy of private enjoyment is so rife is the god of the demand to enjoy one of the things that comes out of this and todd mcgowan's book the end of dissatisfaction is brilliant on this but is that it generates jealousies and envies um it so it generates a real hatred of the other who is enjoying while you're not so it's basically it creates social fragmentation it creates it frays social bonds and uh, so, so a society the demand to enjoy will increasingly uh there'll be more and more social strife and so and breakdown of social bonds that's why actually a reactionary conservatism is always always i mean i would say always <laughs> um and i was trying to say this to elliot in the podcast the last podcast we did is like it's not that some sort of reactionary let's call it fascism but i mean that not in the west through and about but that a reactionary force um just happens to arise it no it's the response to the anxiety that's created by the society of enjoyment we want to re-establish prohibitions and we want to re-establish boundaries 
because the anxiety of the demand, the super egoic demand to enjoy is too much. That's why the asset heads all became Jesus freaks, right? That's why you, you, you always, you know, hippies always end up being fascists, you know, <laughs> you know, give them 20 years. It's, um, it's just because th there's too much anxiety production around no, no prohibitions. The problem is, sorry, I'm, I'm up, you got me excited, but I don't want too much to say, but one of the problems is that there is no way to go back to the God of prohibition. That's, that's the argument of Todd McGowan. I think it's very true. Is, um, and a good example of this is whenever you get, because Christianity, confessional Christianity is uh, conservative Christian, uh, confessional Christianity is often um, where people go when they can't cope with the excessive enjoyment of, of like say living in LA, right? You'll, you end up conservative because the conservative says, for example, sex within the confines of marriage. So that's a prohibition. God, brilliant, right? This, you know, freely available sex becomes very unsexual, right? So a prohibition, it's like, oh, I need a prohibition. There's a prohibition, no sex before marriage, right? But how is it sold to us? It's sold to us as this is the way to get more enjoyment, right? Have sex within marriage because that's the way to really enjoy it. In other words, even the prohibition is in the frame of the demand to enjoy. So people like Mark Driscoll and others, their profound prohibitionary language is still in the service of the God of enjoyment. All right. Um, so that and that's kind of fascist. Well, it ends up being a bit fascistic, which is the enjoyment of the prohibition itself. Right. You, you know, the Nazis have almost this very sexualized you know, you know, uniforms and all that, like there's the enjoyment of the prohibition itself. Um, that's why that never works. The conservative, I like cons conservatives, conserv intellectual, honest conservatives, because they see the problems within the society that demand to enjoy. But for me, their, uh, their uh, prescription is incorrect. Right? So that's why I think even on YouTube, conservatives are often better at seeing the problems within contemporary kind of like a liberal society, progressive society. You see someone like C.S. Lewis's critique of modern society was very good, very insightful. Um, it's just their solutions um, are, I think, fundamentally a problem. I was waffling there, but oh yeah, but the society of man to enjoy creates fragmentation, creates more of a fantasy of private enjoyment. You're absolutely right. And but the issue is it never works. Yes, because we can't privately enjoy. If we if we become pure private enjoyers, we become deeply depressed, deeply unhappy. You know, really, really awful. Um, so we have to find a way to. Uh, and for me, the way is a divided God, right? The God who is also divided. That's the way um, is to to reestablish um, communal um, uh, solidarity. Sorry, I was waffled in a lot of things. Do you want to come back on any of that for a second? And then Sawyer? No, I think that, I mean, that was, I think, especially like putting it in the ways of like these different gods, I think. And when I talk to people about it, I think that like really gets at the root of the issue is that they really are trying to frame things within the demand to enjoy. Uh, and I guess having these conversations with people if you can conceptually get them to imagine maybe a different kind of God, um, that's gonna really like uh, cut them in the way that that makes could make this change happen. Because yeah. by the way, like things like OnlyFans and stuff like that is 
my, my reading of, of something like OnlyFans is partly that we are increasingly in a society where we're afraid of the toxicity of the other. So we're more and more frightened of the other in their toxic singularity. So we more and more will want to have contractual relationships that protect us from the toxicity of the other. So for example, sexual encounters where you can pay a certain amount of money, you get something in return, and you're protected from the dangers of, of, of flirting and having sexual encounter with the other. So that's partly privatizing. So it's privatizing in the sense of more and more protection from the toxicity of the other. And of course, the problem with that is it's deeply destructive to society, but we're seeing all these solutions, technological solutions, which are really attempts to make a solution to the toxic other. Um, but uh, yeah. Uh, Sawyer, do you want to, you had your hand up. Anybody else, by the way, stick your hand up if you want to say something so I can see your hand, I can jump to you. Okay, or just jump in. But Sawyer, did you want to say something? Like yeah, just quickly, I, just, I was just curious, because you're talking about this like solution not as a return, but as as a movement, this idea of undivided God. But I'm wondering also, like, if you, um, I'm I'm just thinking about like uh, like Foucault and and um, ideas of like um, new forms of of subjectivity and 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 micro resistances. It's kind of a response to. I'm wondering how that if that fits into what you're talking about, or if you have a critique of that. Um, if you kind of try, if you yeah. Yeah, I mean, of Foucault in general, or in particular, his notion in particular, of... particular, the solution to, I guess, um, like power structures as uh, individuals creating new forms of subject subjectivity as a response. Um, so not necessarily like there's a return or we know the... If I'm kind of understanding his ideas properly, like there's not a return to prohibition there's not a full embrace of enjoyment, but there's um, acting acting in response or in in, a, in rebellion to uh, the dominant power structure as a way to sort of um, create new forms of subjectivity. But it's not a return because it kind of can't be in yeah. what you're saying because kind of based on like your uh, I forgot the example you used, but are are the ways in which we um, conceive of prohibition now is just a firm of there's enjoyment somewhere down that that line yeah um you know it's funny so i'm not i'm not a big fan of Foucault, and i you know because he's very you know he doesn't like the idea of the unconscious he's very critical of psychoanalysis and um so i'm not as but I feel like it would be very difficult for me to access all my critiques of Foucault, which are, are there from like 20 years ago. Um, and, and what I will say might not be fair to Foucault, because as I say, I'm accessing files from a long time ago. But, um, you know, I'd be interested because of his concern with the, with, you know, his rejection of the kind of Freudian unconscious. Um, I wonder if I remember I felt Foucault was his his kind of ideas of these micro resistances kind of actually fall into the earlier critique we were talking about that sometimes these micro resistances are precisely what the power structure needs in order to continue to function um and i don't i was never as convinced with Foucault's kind of political uh kind of like the consequences but i feel like i'm not i like you're going to make me do some reading i'm going to go back and start thinking about 
my Foucault again. Um, Cause yeah. Yeah, I think it's hard cause there's always a way to sort of redraw that like refit things in the structure um, in some ways. And so I kind of agree with you. I was just curious if you had. Oh, yeah. yeah. By the way, Alison, you were nodding your head when I was talking about the toxicity of the other. Do you have anything you wanted to say about that or just where you were nodding your head? <laughs> you don't have to say anything, but. Nothing to add, but that I was very much amused by that um, reference point. Oh yeah, oh yeah, thank you. Yeah, I, th I thought that because you were smiling and nodding your head. So, so yeah, because yeah, it's very much, um, I, I do want to do more on that, but I, I have noticed this. And I honestly think Corona, the COVID also played into it because we're literally talking about a physical germ, like as in the actual, you know, there's actual fear of the other getting too close, stay six feet apart, whatever. The, that's one thing. Technological purity, as in creating spaces technologically where you hang out with people who are like yourself and, and, and separate from people who are not like you. Um, and then uh, also, you know, politically, there's, you know, but um, sexually, the things like OnlyFans, there's, there's just, it seems like there's a lot of things going on where sadly a perfect storm of where we're living in a society where increasingly um, we are, as uh, Chandler was saying, kind of like kind of privatizing ourselves more and more. There's less of a commons and this could be a very dangerous, dangerous thing. Um, well, I August suppose what it ties back to Oh, okay, I just finished that thought. Okay, so um, what it kind of ties back to is what you were saying about commodification, because um, a lot of times the transactions that you're having on OnlyFans is um, there's like a team of people that are, you know, online at certain times of day so that they can respond within the, you know, ideal time frame of you know, immediate responses, engaged interactions and all that, just to continue to keep the, um, the person, the subscriber still interested. Yes, yes. I know, I'm like, I, I don't know, like, I mean, I think we all feel this. I, I, I maybe I'm just, I don't think I'm madness. Like I do feel in the last five years, increasingly concerned with interactions. Um, and uh, so, like, I think it's in the air, whether it's real or not, we can, we can, you know, say it doesn't matter. It's real in the sense of it's in our heads, it's in our, it's in our minds. And, uh, and there are various technologies that are kind of playing into that um, to try to kind of, you know, give us, like, you know, she's like talks about coffee without caffeine, war without casualties. This is, you know, only fans of sex without sex, right? So it's a, but we're trying to kind of, in a sense, have the thing without the dangerous dimension of the thing, um, which kind of makes sense. But of course, it's the dangerous dimension of the other that is also where all the enjoyment is. And by the way, I know we've gone over time. I'll just say one more thing on that. And please feel free to just to duck out um, if you need to duck out. Um, but for Freud and particularly Lacan, he calls, Freud called the unknown dimension of the other, the dasting. He calls it so dasting, and I love the phrase because it's so harsh, it's the thing, you know, dasting. Dasting is the unknown dimension of basically the mother, the mother other, um, which is this dimension of the other that is both so alluring and so terrifying <laughs> is the other's desire and where do I fit within the other's desire and what do they want of me and it's both really mesmerizing and really terrifying and that thing is connected to this other thing 
object A, which is an adulthood experience of the dusting. But what, um, what we often are trying to do is protect ourselves from the dusting of the other, their unknown desire, the, the dimension of the other that is kind of terrifying and, and all-consuming. And um, Richard Boothby at Wake did this beautiful talk um, on how he basically said that Jesus's um, uh, command, you know, love your enemy, is really a sense of an, um, uh, an invitation into loving the dusting of the other, which almost means to be able to tolerate the unknown desire of the other and not hide from it and somehow tarry with it. Um, it's a beautiful rendition of that. Oh, by the way, last night I was talking to a friend who said in my Q&A last week, somebody asked about Jesus. And I said, I don't talk very much about Jesus, but um, in my work, but here's what I think. And then he said that for the next five minutes, the sound went off, as I said, everything I thought about Jesus. And then just as I finished, it started again. So I <laughs> created this. And then I said, and so that's what I think. So uh, I quite like that. If that's true, I think that's really, really good. I didn't plan that. Um, but yes, that's, that's my thing about Jesus is Jesus was um, kind of inviting us to love the neighbor and even the enemy, which is this toxic dimension of the other um, that 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 technology is promising can we can we can get rid of we can get rid of it so the other is a reflection of ourselves and the really other other is an enemy that we can cut out of society and not have to engage with at all and the demand of Jesus is no love your enemy if your mother or father you think that their their views are terrible sit down with them and have a drink with them and be in the presence of that, that unknown desire that they have. Uh, any final comment? Oh, Courtney, come, uh, come on and you do the final comment or thought or question. Well, I'm hoping you will do the final comment. <laughs> I'm sorry I'm talking so much. No. Um, I just wanted to share real quick. There's a really fantastic episode of, of uh, the original Star Trek where the, uh, the crew comes to a planet where they're waging war, but it's all done via computer. And the computer calculates, well, this side, side A, let's say, uh, made a strike against side B, and side B has this many casualties. So in that country or that continent or whatever, let's say 10,000 casualties, 10,000 people voluntarily go to have themselves executed. And it's, I mean, completely bloodless. They're just kind of vaporized painlessly. Um, completely bloodless war, completely um, weaponless war. And yet these people are so locked into it that they can't get out of it. I just, I've always thought that that's just the most fascinating and horrible. Yes. <laughs> horrible <laughs> Uh, second, somebody in the in the chat has a, a question saying, Pete, how do you explain Jesus being divided? Can you say something about that? Oh, yeah. So I, I didn't look at the chat box. Thank you for saying that. And if there's anything else in the chat box, let me know before the end. <laughs> That's that was worth saying. Um, oh, so not Christ divided, Christ crucified, but particularly Jesus, the figure of Jesus. Is that, yeah, I'm guessing. Um, so... The, the, one of the reasons, very quickly, why I have not done much on, as much on Jesus in recent years and have spent much more time in this notion of Christ is that it is the, the notion of God dying, of Christ crucified, 
is such a philosophically and theologically rich idea and politically rich idea. So I've really concentrated on that, that idea that, that in Christ crucified, you get the idea of the, the eternal and the temporal together, that the, um, uh, the God and humanity and this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This kind of experience within God of self-division. So that's why Christ has been very interesting to me. Um, and it's harder to, to weave that into the gospel stories of Jesus. Um, so I've kind of like done less on Jesus. Um, but what Richard Boothby has done, and this is where I'm kind of excited about doing a book study of his, and I'll put up his talk in the next couple of weeks on YouTube, um, is, uh, you know, he are, his, his argument is the, the most innovative thing about Jesus. Like what, because I'm interested in what makes certain figures radical. Right? Not what makes him the same as everybody else, but what's different. And one of the things about Jesus is potentially that what Richard Boothby argues is in Greek religion, you have the notion of the otherness of the universe, the otherness, the mystery of reality is behind. We can't get access to it. So we've got all these crazy myths. The Greeks didn't really believe the myths. The myths are kind of like anthropological kind of attempts to make sense of what is utterly impossible for us to make sense of, right? So that's the imaginary. Um, you get within, say, Judaism, this incredible notion of, the, of God, the other, as utterly inaccessible, and you can't make graven images. And what you have is the symbolic, the law. You have, you have the covenants. You have that. Um, and what Boothby says in Jesus, what you have is the notion that, oh, so these are different ways to relate to the up to this otherness, to this absolute otherness. And he said, the interesting thing about Jesus, who's a Jew, is that he says that this otherness is in your neighbor and in your enemy. So this otherness is, is the way to encounter God is to encounter your neighbor. And into and so I think that's right. So if, if I do, which I will do probably in 2023, a series of seminars on Jesus, the figure of Jesus, that basically the punchline will be this. Um, it will be that the radicality of the message of Jesus is that the encounter with this radical asymmetry of the universe, this otherness that is part of reality, this otherness that is infused in everything, our way of, of en encountering that is through our love of the other nothing else it is a religion of the love of the other um uh yeah and so that, and that's yeah i don't know if that helps if i'm answering the question or not but definitely the richard boothby talks worth listening to okay um i would love to keep going because this is really fun but leave them wanting more that's the thing we're going with this goes on forever so we're going to do this again next month <laughs> um so thanks so much for being part of this i really enjoyed it this is i i didn't have anything to bring oh chris go for it. did you want to say something oh no somebody said something no i no i did uh, a couple of weeks ago we talked about this is unrelated to what we've been talking about oh, yeah uh, we had talked about catamarans I, i'm going to put a link right there and the, You'll enjoy this, by the way. In fact, if uh, go watch that, you'll get a kick. Okay, I'm gonna have to copy it uh, because yeah. as soon as I close this down, I'm gonna lose It'll it. Just so give me a second. <laughs> um, I'm gonna, yeah, because yeah, I've done this before where I've closed it down and then I realize that you can't get access to any of the chat. 
So, uh, okay, I'll watch that. <laughs> Pete, you. while you're um, just copying, oh. can I jump in just very quickly to say that for anyone who is around next week, if they want to come to this link at this time, um, so 11.30 PST, then we're going to have a session where we're discussing and planning um, doing a transformance art event online in the coming few weeks and um, putting it together as a community group. So if anyone's interested, then don't feel like you have to sign up or inform anyone, just turn up next week and we'll have a discussion. Um, Mary Beth, I know you sent me an email about it. So um, rather than replying to your email, I will just tell you now. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. And for anyone who's in LA, I know, Amy, you're close. It's Sunday, the 31st, hanging out at high, high def. But yeah, this has been a very, very uh, enjoyable little coffee and concept. So I think this is the model for how to do things as we move forward. Thank you so much for being part of it. And I'll uh, see you all very soon. It was Bye. very good, Peter. Thank you.